And it's good to be with God's people this morning. I'm looking at the lineup here. We've, we've got a nice full service. We're not, we're not, we're not doing things light here at La Plata Baptist Church. Um, on top of just some good time together spent in prayer. And we will be, Lord willing, observing the Lord's Supper here at the conclusion of the service. So those of you who are um, uh, participating uh, in that, I hope you got your elements there in the back. And thank you uh, to those who set that up for us. Well, let me begin with a question, as I often do on, in our sermons. And um, let me ask, what do you know about greatness? What do you know about greatness? Who comes to mind? Who's great in your mind? What was their pathway to greatness? Some of you enjoy biographies. Some of you enjoy documentaries on great figures. You know, with these figures, there's great strengths. But the more you look, there's also great weaknesses that accompany it as well. Uh, Maybe you think of business, uh, business people, certain professionals who've achieved their brief fame, but in many ways at the expense of families or expense of their marriage. I encourage you to study those figures and look at them closely. But let me ask you this. How open are you to the idea of greatness through losing your ambitions in living for someone truly worthy and greater than yourself? Just imagine a king so glorious that it's a joy to yield your, your limited time on earth to serve at his pleasure Trusting that your reward in him far outweighs the, the cost of the temporary right now. How would you feel if you knew that forfeiting your quote unquote dreams or uh, because this king has plans far greater than you could ever dream or imagine. And it in, in, includes you in his glory and love. And it far surpasses far surpasses the fleeting pleasures of this age. I'd like to tell you about that particular king this morning. Let's take our Bibles and turn to Mark's gospel, chapter 9. Mark, chapter 9. It's on page 896-97 in the Bible that's provided for you there in the pew. Mark, chapter 9. Mark, as you know, is, a, is like a docudrama. It's a narrative about Jesus. Jesus the, is the divine Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father. As he's the major emphasis of this gospel, who has come to lead people in an exodus, not out of Egypt, but out of sin and death into life everlasting. He's come to redeem them by his own blood from their sins. And in his first advent, his first coming, this is the advent season, I thought I'd use that term. He does not appear to be victorious in Mark's gospel. A prevailing notion in the first century was that a crucified Messiah would be a disqualified Messiah. And truly the point of all four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, is to tell the suffering, death, and resurrection of Messiah, of Christ. Jesus has prioritized again and again in Mark's gospel, teaching and training the disciples. 
And if you, as a reader, as you, as you go along, if you feel like you're with them, if you're, if you feel just as knuckleheaded, if you feel like, man, I'm slow just to learn and grasp these, that's, that's exactly what Mark wants us to feel is that we should be able to see ourselves in many ways in the disciples. And now as he sets his course towards Jerusalem, Jesus, will they come, we begin to ask ourselves, will they come to understand that he is the servant king whose ministry is characterized by suffering service? Will they, will they get it? Are they going to get it now? I mean, there's been a number of things. It should be pretty plain, especially in, in chapter 8 where he's told them as much specifically. Will they see that their ministry, like his, is the path of suffering service? The better question is, will we see that about ourselves? Mark chapter 9, verses 30 through 41. Hear God's word. Then they left that place and made their way through Galilee, but he did not want anyone to know it. For he was teaching his disciples and telling them, the Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him. And after he is killed, he will rise three days later. But they did not understand this statement, and they were afraid to ask him. They came to Capernaum. When he was in the house, he asked them, What were you arguing about on the way? But they were silent because on the way they had been arguing with one another about who was the greatest. Sitting down, he called the twelve and said to them, If anyone wants to be first, he must be last and servant of all. He took a child. Had him stand among them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever welcomes one little child such as this in my name welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but him who sent me. Verse 38, John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone driving out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he wasn't following us. Don't stop him, Jesus said. Because there is no one who will perform a miracle in my name who can soon afterwards speak evil of me. For whoever is not against us is for us. And whoever gives you a cup of water to drink in my name because you belong to Christ, truly I tell you, he will never lose his reward. This is God's word. Here in Mark's gospel, we see the second prediction by Jesus concerning his death. It was in chapter 8, now again here in chapter 9. This is the second of three of these, where Jesus predicts his death, the disciples fail to understand, demonstrating some act of pride or presumption, and then Jesus teaches about being a servant. You can't miss what Mark's doing here. After the first prediction of the cross, Peter rebukes Jesus. Here, during this second prediction, the disciples are debating who's the greatest. And then later, in the third, in chapter 10, James and John request to sit on the right and left hand of Jesus in glory. In each case, just when Jesus has made his most profound and revealing teaching to the disciples, they show themselves to be blind, devoid of any understanding of Jesus' vocation as as the Son of Man and how this should involve them. They miss it. They seem to regularly miss the right perception of who Jesus is and what he came to do and the right perception of themselves. Here's the central points there for you in your bulletin. Jesus did not mix words. Jesus did not mix words about what he came to do, about what he came to do, and the pattern disciples follow in him, and the pattern 
disciples follow in him. Therefore, let us be served by and serve like Jesus. Let us be served by and serve like Jesus. Number one, receive his service in the gospel. Receive his service in the gospel. And we'll be focusing now on verses 30 through 32, as you can see in the outline. First sub point, he made this his clear focus. He made this his clear focus. Verse 30, Jesus did not want the crowds to know about his next move, likely for a number of reasons. Clearest ones being he didn't want people pushing him into a political Messiah according to their worldly thinking. The other reason is stated in verse 31. Jesus was teaching his disciples and telling them. He takes time to continue to instruct. They, like us, still have much to learn. Jesus' goal was to prepare them for what lies ahead. For him, in many ways, for those who follow him. And he needs privacy to do this. What we see again and again is Jesus investing in these few who will carry the gospel to the world. Most would think Jesus needs to keep his poll numbers high, right? Keep the movement going. Keep the crowds. Let's keep this thing moving, baby. But no, that's not his mindset. He doesn't do that. Many today still want Christianity to be immediately, immediately popular. And I understand good reasons for that. Nobody, I mean, none of us are in a morbid, hopefully in a morbid sense thinking, boy, I sure hope for suffering today. That's not, that's not the goal. But some think that social media and topical messages are the way to just keep bringing the crowds larger, make a, make a man-made movement here greater. And friends, there's no substitute for old-fashioned, slow-going, patient discipleship. There's just no substitute for it. So my question for you church members is this. Who are you investing in today, spiritually? Who is your one or, or few that you are pouring into right now the gospel of Jesus Christ. Parents, we should, first thing in our mind should be thinking about is our children. We, we know for certain we have a unique opportunity to pour the gospel over their little lives first. And members, we should pour the gospel into that coworker in whatever ways the Lord opens that door for us, that neighbor, that, fam, that family member, that God keeps bringing across our paths. So who are the few or the one that you're seeking to pour the gospel into? Can you think of anybody? If you're thinking to yourself, man, I'm not, I'm not trying this with anybody. Well, now this message is for you. Think and pray that God would bring somebody into your life so you might share Jesus with them at the pace that God would have you to share it. That person that you know maybe needs to be encouraged. However it is, be praying for that in your life. We should start asking each other, hey, who are you trying to reach these days? That should be normal. You should expect me to ask you that. I probably will today. I hope maybe if I catch some of you, I have to serve, hey, who you, who's on your heart this week? Who's on your, who's on your heart and mind to, to invest the gospel in? In verse 31, Jesus teaches them the gospel, his gospel. Specifically, look at the content, the Son of Man. This is the divine human promise in Daniel and Ezekiel. In the Old Testament, the royal conquering figure, the people long for in an unjust world. And Jesus identifies himself once again 
as this one. And then he drops the bomb in there with him saying he is going to be betrayed. The son of man that is going to be betrayed into the hands of men according to God's plan. He tells him that. And the promised ruler to come reign and restore all things is also the suffering servant that we heard about in Isaiah 53. To come to redeem God's people from their sins and God's wrath by becoming a curse on their behalf. And Jesus says he's, he's going to be betrayed, being betrayed into the hands of men. Same term that will be used of our Lord's betrayal by Judas. Things are in motion for him to be handed over into human hands. But friends, never forget, this is all part of God's sovereign plan. And Mark, as usual, layers the meaning here. The term betrayed, maybe you're, you can see in your footnotes of your translations, they're handed over is an Old Testament picture of being placed in God's judgment, very similar to the language of Isaiah 53. And certainly the Jews and Gentiles will kill him, but not outside of God's sovereign and mysterious plan. You know, friends, it was God's intention to use the the murderous hostility of the Jewish leaders and wicked Gentiles to accomplish his redemptive purposes. So we must not forget God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, one God, three persons, purposed in eternity past that this death would happen in order that God might not destroy us, his believing people who deserve death. That he would have mercy on any all who would repent and trust in Jesus. It was part of his plan. This is some heavy stuff that Jesus is talking about here. You know, the friends, the, the cost... Maybe your categories for God is holy need to be adjusted today. Maybe you don't understand that God is holy. And you understand that the cost of sin, rebellion against our creator is very high. We've, we've heard this illustration many times. It's, it's one thing for me to, to go against a local official in some transgression type way. It's another thing to do that, say, against the White House, right? There's, a, there's different levels. Friends, rebellion against God is most serious. The wages of sin is death. The way God purposed for the Son of Man on His way to the crown is by way of the cross. Salvation is ours by His suffering. As you see in the text, after enduring necessary suffering, according to God's final timetable, Jesus will rise again from the dead. You see Jesus unpacking, the, just telling them the gospel. His death is the great end for which he came into the world, though. Friends, it's only through Jesus God can remain just in pouring justice on Christ and judging him for the sins of his people and yet declare sinners to be righteous. It's at the cross where we see justice and mercy meet together. Jesus got the justice you and I deserve. We get mercy. If we put our trust in him. When, oh, friends, when we look at the cross, we're dealing with a confrontation, aren't we? The cross of Christ is a confrontation. How serious is our sin? Look at the cross. How serious and weighty is our sin against a holy God? Look at our Savior nailed to Calvary's cross, shedding his blood. He who committed no sin, he who knew no sin became sin for us. So that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. That we might be credited his righteousness. He took all of our sin. We get his righteousness if we trust in him. This is God's offer in placing Jesus as our substitute on the cross. How else could we be saved? 
On that cross, God appointed for the Son in full true humanity, body and soul, to bear the sins and judgment of his people so that God could justly pardon us from our sin debt, which we could not pay, not for all eternity. Do you feel laid down this morning in guilt over your sins? Do you feel weighted down by your failures? Some of you feel just overwhelmed with grief over your sin today. First of all, that's a good thing. Jesus said, blessed are the mournful. He goes, they will know comfort. Here's the comfort. Come to Christ. Take your sins to Jesus. Who else could take away your sins? Really? Who who else could take away your sins and satisfy God's just wrath? Only Jesus. Come to Christ. If you know who Jesus is, trust in him. Remember what he's done for you. Friends, he didn't come to merely teach and preach and work miracles. He came to pay the ransom for our sins by his own blood and suffering and on the cross. Let us never forget that. You can, you might miss a lot of things this morning in the service and the sermon. Don't miss that. So my question is, have you believed upon Jesus? And are you believing on him today? Are you resting today in what he did in his perfect life and substitutionary death and resurrection as your only hope for eternal life? Are you resting that that the offer that he is your only righteousness to stand before God Almighty? You know, when we talk about faith in Christ, trusting in Jesus, we're talking about a reasoned choice that says, God, you are holy. I'm a sinner and you'd be just to judge me for how I have sinned and rebelled against you, how I've been so thoughtless towards you, how I've asked you to conform to me. God, you'd be just to condemn me forever for the ways I've ignored you and actually hated you. You'd be just, God, to condemn me for the ways I've wasted the life you gave me on selfish things and how I've not loved others. You would be just, God, to deal with me for the ways I've lusted, coveted, hated, and lacked love in my heart. But Jesus, you never sinned. And God, you said, if, you, if I take your side against my sin, repent and trust in Jesus' perfect sacrifice for me and his resurrection, then I could be saved. I trust your promise. Jesus alone is my only hope and plea. I believe on him enough to bank my eternal, eternal stakes on him, eternity on him and his work in person. I give my life to Jesus. That's what faith in Jesus is about. I'm holding only to Jesus Christ. So are you trusting in your own goodness as you compare yourself to other sinners? Or are you receiving Jesus by faith in your mind and heart and life today? Oh, friends, if you've heard anything, I hope that you've heard that. Second point, sub point, excuse me, second sub point. We're still in point one. Second sub point. He teaches us who are, he teaches us who are reluctant. He teaches us who are reluctant. The disciples, verse 32, still have no understanding or uh, maturity here and, and, and mature faith. I have to mention, by the way, the same account in Luke chapter 9, verse 45. It says the truth, this situation, the reality was concealed from them so they could not grasp it. It's not until Luke 24, 45 that the text says Jesus opens their minds to understand the scriptures. All that to say is that knowledge of Jesus is privileged information. It's by, it comes by grace. They had, it, they had all the information they, you could think humanly they could want, but they still don't understand. Jesus discloses who he is when he pleases. And that's, friends, that's why we pray. 
That's why we pray for God to move in people's hearts and minds. You can read the Bible and hear sermons, but Christ discloses himself to the heart through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. We need the help of the Holy Spirit. To be fair to the disciples, we know now what they did not know then. And only after the resurrection does it all make sense to them. For them, they had no room in their minds, like you and me, for a dying Messiah. Did you notice that in the text that they did not understand? But look at this. They, they didn't want to either. They're, they're not asking for follow-up questions. That's interesting, Jesus. No questions. No follow-up questions. And it goes with the context of the previous verses. This is really neat. Don't miss this in, the, in, the, in, in chapter 9. Remember the last sermon? The boy's father who was desperate for his son? The readiness of the boy's father to ask Jesus for more faith, help, I believe, help my unbelief, is now contrasted here with the disciples' reticence to ask Jesus for more understanding. Don't miss that in the text. Friend, have you identified how reluctant you are to receive God's word at times? You know, those, those hard sayings, those, those points of sacrifice and commitment to Christ that you hear preached from the pulpit or talked about amongst Christians. And you're like, that's, mm -hmm, yeah, no further questions. How about, is that, has that ever happened in your walk? See Jesus here. He teaches reluctant ones like you and me. And praise God, he does. You know what our response to be? Is not to stop asking questions, but to ask him to increase the faith in our hearts. Ask him to work in our hearts to, to, to walk in, in, in faithfulness and obedience, to be receptive to his word. And friends, when you pray that meaningfully with integrity before the Lord, watch out. Watch what he does in your life. Jesus does not mix words about what he came to do and the pattern disciples follow in him. Let us be served by and serve like Jesus. Number two, point number two. Be last and servant of all. Be last and servant of all, verses 33 through 37. I mean, <laughs> I, that's a great way to build a church, right? Hey, be last. Like, who is preaching that today? Nobody. Be last and servant of all. But Jesus did. This is his word. See, the disciples are caught right here in this section. They're jockeying for a position when, uh, when, when, when Jesus comes to make all things new. They are literally debating about who is the greatest. <laughs> They're not concerned about who might betray him or deny him. He just said that's going to happen. They're not concerned about that, that they might actually be the one who would do that. No, they're debating about who's the greatest. They blow by Jesus' heavy words, move back to where they are comfortable, self-aggrandizement. And, and no focus on the kingdom of God, but focus on the kingdom of self. You see that, right? That's what's in the passage. Jesus is talking about the kingdom of God. They're talking about the kingdom of self. Don't miss that. All right, you, you, can, you can write in your margin, tone deaf, right? This is just... Totally missed it, misread the room, didn't hear. This is, this, is, this is painful. Gospel gratitude has not sunken in yet. First sub point to help us here. 
to be last and servant of all? First subpoint: repent of pride and rivalry. Repent of pride and rivalry. 33 through 35. The irony, as you can tell, is tremendous. They're talking about greatness, and Jesus is talking about service. They have a vision of their own fame while being in the presence of the one who has the name that's above all names. And what we, what we can learn, discern from wisdom from this text right here is pridefulness and prideful people are contentious and they like to argue. They're slow to submit to Christ. The disciples had argued, remember, over who forgot the loaves in chapter 8. They had argued with teachers of the law when they failed to exercise an unclean spirit in chapter 9. They will argue with successful exorcists who don't follow them right here in chapter 9. They will snort at a woman who displays extravagant devotion to Jesus and denounce it as waste in chapter 14. You get the picture. This competitive spirit even taints their last supper with Jesus as Peter boasts that he will outdo all of the disciples in remaining faithful to Jesus. Their inability to comprehend Jesus matches their distorted understanding of their own futures. There's a lesson right there. The fact is, when we do not comprehend who Jesus is every day, we will distort the view of ourselves, the right view of ourselves. If we don't have the right view of Jesus, we'll have the wrong view of ourselves too. And you notice that Jesus totally busts them in this dispute in selfish ambition. I mean, there's embarrassed silence there. You see that in the passage? All that clamoring and arguing, Jesus shows up and just... Nothing to see here. Totally busted. But you know, I couldn't help but just sense a foretaste here, right? You ever think about the shameful silence you and I will know when we give an account to Jesus over all the ways we live for ourselves when we stand before him? Don't you want to minimize those as much as you can? Right now, time is ticking, it's getting away. We got just a little, a little bit more time before we stand before him. What do we want in our hands? They are participating in rivalry and selfish ambition. And they thought of themselves as great in the department of discernment, but they clearly were not. They were virtue signalers, weren't they? They were fine with cancel, uh, cancel culture, as you can tell. They're trying to cancel somebody in the, in the text in just a little bit. And if you think this is only something that happens in the world and not in the church, you're blind. Virtue signaling, canceling people. Yeah, it happens among those who name the name of Jesus. Just like today, matters of rank and recognition are important to folks. And rivalry is, is alive and well in churches today, and it's a danger to unity. I mean, you, could, you could watch folks online who, who revile brothers and sisters that Jesus died for because they disagree how much about how the church should handle debatable matters. Look at how people leave churches over debatable matters because they're too busy listening to online voices rather than drawing their, their own shepherds that God has providentially given them. They'll get worked up over something online more than they do their own sin. More worked up and burdened over that than their own lack of prayer, their lack of evangelism, and their lack of love for their brothers and sisters. If a church can't stand together for the gospel, one author said, we don't deserve to have any impact. 
We don't deserve to have any impact if we can't stand together for the gospel. Friends, key in here. Lurking in all of our hearts is rivalry and competition. The desire for recognition and praise can be a very real temptation. And it may, it may be one that's causing some of you to perhaps today great trouble. I can say in my own heart and life, I've seen this creep up. How about you? All of us need to take a good heart check and remember that we are at risk of forgetting the basic lesson for Christian ministry. Ready? That we are neither fit to serve nor capable of igniting even a little spark of spiritual life. None of us are fit to serve and none of us are capable of igniting a spiritual, a spark of spiritual life in anyone. Whether we like to admit it or not, pride and self-comparisons is one of the common, most common sins that beset us as believers in a church. Don't we naturally think far better of ourselves than we ought? Can't we care about how much or how little someone may think of us? And we all naturally imagine that we deserve something better than we have. It is the oldest and very subtle sin, as J.C. Ryle noted, and he continued... Well, he, in his commentary, he really hits hard on this. But I just want to share with you something J.C. Ryle mentioned here about this sin. It rules and reigns in many a heart without being detected and can even wear the clothing of humility. It is a most soul-ruining sin. It prevents repentance, keeps people back from Christ, checks brotherly love, and nips spiritual concern in the bud, end quote. Man. Good Mr. Ryle was preaching back then, and that still preaches today. One of the ways we repent of this is simply putting it on our radar. Never assume, that's that's so-and-so's problem over there. No, put it on your radar. It will creep up in your heart and mind. So let's watch out against it and be on guard for this in our hearts and minds. But being as wonderful as he is, Jesus comes in and redefines greatness there in verse 35. If anyone wants to be first, he must be last and servant of all. The term servant commonly referred to a table raider, domestic servant, someone whose sole purpose was to meet the practical needs of others. Pastor, is Jesus calling us to radical self-sacrifice for others? Yes. Yes, Jesus is calling for that. The one who wants to be first must become last of all and servant of all. Here's a question, friends. Who fantasizes about becoming servants? I mean, do you ever dream of that? How can I be a great servant? That's certainly not built in naturally. It's not championed in the world. But we should. We should be those who aspire to be servants like Jesus. What's your ambition? Is it to be a servant like Jesus? How many parents are building this into their homes right now? How many individuals are making this their mantra? I want to be, I aspire to serve like Jesus, to be a, a mere table waiter. I mean, do we need more swagger, more snarkiness, cockiness, popularity today, friends? Is that what we really need? I mean, does that really, does that reach people? Would you like me to be more cutesy and clever and cocky as a preacher? 
Or, I mean, you want me to be more angry, maybe, about the topics that make you feel really good and right? Would you like me to be more self-righteous as your pastor? Do you want that from the, from the ministry of the pulpit? I, I would like to think that you probably don't. Do we want our members shouting in the flesh to a deaf world about how messed up they are? How messed up their politics are? Pick your, pick your issue. Or, should we take on the servant heart of Jesus, commune deeply in prayer with the Father, and then spread generously the message of the cross being salt and light? I'm not telling you we don't speak the truth. We absolutely do. Friends, we need to be like Jesus. We need to take on the mindset of the servants of our Lord and Savior. What's the antidote to rivalry? Look at the next subpoint. Serve the least and not yourself. Serve the least and not yourself. 36 through 37, the word, the world, here's what the world says. <clears throat> if you want to get on, don't concern yourself with those who can do nothing for you. Be strategic, network, manipulate. Is that not what we're taught to do? Is that not what's natural to our flesh? Too, many, too often that mindset has crept into the church. So many people are, are, are afraid to commit to the church because they're, they're scared to death that somehow the church might slow them down. When in fact they need to unite themselves with God's people and be a servant. The world says, don't concern yourself with those who can do nothing for you. Do you size up friends and relationships based on what people can do for you? I think that stuff creeps into the church. Jesus says, do exactly the opposite. He tells us to seek the last place and serve everybody. And he illustrates, look at the text, by bringing a child physically right there into the presence. Little, little child into the, into the situation. Here's a, a visual for you disciples, right? You know, children were very insignificant in ancient culture. It's different than it is today. So this child would be the, the perfect object lesson to counter the disciples' selfish ambitions. They would have looked at that child like, yeah, just get out of the way. There's, there's someone over there who's more important who can, you know, feed this situation. They could be political, just like you and me can. They could choose relationships based on benefit. So Jesus does not set up the child as a model to be imitated here. Because his culture had no romanticized notions about children. Children in Jesus' day lacked social status and rights of their own. Now, just to the children who are present this morning, just a sidebar here. Children, you are wholly dependent on your parents. You are so vulnerable, and often you don't realize how vulnerable you are. Children do not believe you're the top of the social ladder. I don't care what the world says. When literally you have accomplished not a lot and you are highly reliant on your parents and the privileges they afford you. There are some decisions you should not be making. And you're not old enough and mature enough and godly enough to make those decisions. And you can argue with me after the service. I'd be happy to take it up with you. But I'm sure there'd be a lot of dads who take, get my back on that. There are a lot of decisions. I look back, I've gone to my dad and said, why did you let me make that decision? I was not ready for that decision. 
He just laughed. He thought it was funny. I asked him one time, do you ever just think my brother and I were just pretty stupid? He said, all the time. (laughs) I just moved on. Jesus' point about the child here stresses that true greatness means caring about even the most insignificant people to our agendas. Because Jesus himself is concerned about them. Do you follow me? You get the reason he uses this illustration. He chooses such a one to represent those who are needy and lowly. So if one wants to be great, one should shower attention on those who are regarded as insignificant. As Jesus himself has done, we are desperate, poor, needy sinners. We're like the flowers of the field that just pop up and we're dirt. We're not. We, we have a view of ourselves that's not accurate. And as we read this passage, we, don't, we, we need to have in mind serving those who are the antidote for rivalry and ambition. So friend, who could you serve in the church and outside the church that can do nothing for you? Who could you serve in the church that has nothing to offer you? Now, by the way, if someone's serving you this week, doesn't mean they're looking at you that way. But we all should be pushed like, I don't need to try to get anything out of this, but I just need to love like Jesus. Who did, you, who, who did you serve today? Who did you serve today being okay with the fact, uh, or this week, being okay with the fact that you may never get any earthly, earthly recognition for doing it or any benefit out of serving them? Who could you serve today and be content with no one taking a picture of it and posting it for you to feel good about? Could you serve under those circumstances? I mean, don't get me wrong. There's a time and place to share about the, about the ministry for sure. But don't forget the temptation for glory. And don't forget Jesus' illustration to serve those you know in no real way can benefit you. They need to be encouraged in Christ. The disciples and readers of the text understand we are the poor, needy children. That's who we are. That most would find annoying and easy to dismiss Our Creator should have no love for us since we are consistently rebellious against Him. But Jesus requires His great, quote-unquote, great disciples to show humble service for the humble. In God's assessment, the one who desires to be first, the greedy person who aspires to position, power, and influence, gets nowhere. But the one who aspires to be last is exalted. Desire to serve the least is to serve the Lord Jesus. To serve the least is to serve the Lord Jesus. And to serve Jesus is to serve God the Father who sent him. Jesus says here. Jesus didn't mix words about what he came to do in the pattern disciples following him. Let us be served by and serve like Jesus. Number three. Value humble service. Value humble service. 38 through 41. The disciples go on here. And as you can see, they reject a man driving out demons in Jesus' name because he's not one of their number. What we see is that he, that man who's doing this is on Jesus' side. He's heading in the right direction toward the coming kingdom of Christ. And the disciples value themselves, though, more than Jesus and his kingdom. And it shows again. 
So what can we learn about valuing humble service? First sub point here, be critical of a competitive spirit. Be critical of a competitive spirit. 38 and 39. Verse 38 reveals that the apostles apparently believe that they are the only authorized agents of Jesus. The complaint, again, drips with irony. Remember, they were recently, they recently, you know, blundered the man whose son was demon-possessed and afflicted. Yet they do not hesitate to obstruct someone who is successful at this, but who is not a member of their team. If you see that, you're seeing the picture accurately. It does remind you of Moses and Joshua. Some of you probably already saw that in the passage. The similarities from the book of Exodus and the Pentateuch. Remember Joshua in in Numbers 11 implored Israel's leader to do something about unauthorized prophets. Moses, my Lord, stop them. Moses answered, my Lord. uh, But he says, Moses, my Lord, stop them. Verse 29 of Numbers 11. Moses asked him, are you jealous on my account? If only on the Lord's people, if only all the Lord's people were prophets and the Lord would place his spirit on them. Similar situation, Exodus and Pentateuch themes come up again and again in Mark's gospel. Are the disciples jealous for Jesus or for themselves? Do they want the corner of the exorcism market, which would make them indispensable and revered, whereas Jesus wishes that all were able to do great work in his name? I mean, we can, we can understand the temptation here, the desire to be regarded as special. But they are still concerned about their ranking. They want exclusive rights to Jesus' name as if they owned a special copyright, copyright to it. Others must apply to them before they can use it. And this attitude, friends, can creep up in the church today. If we can't do it, We do not want anybody else to do it either sometimes. And Jesus gave the first reason not to stop the man. Look at the text. He says, anyone who performed a miracle in his name wouldn't turn and speak evil of him. He's not advocating tolerance uh, where there is no truth. The kind of anything goes inclusive attitude. Clearly Jesus is not doing that. Nor is he making a definitive statement, an assessment, excuse me, of this man's ministry, good or bad. Time will tell about what happens with this man who's doing this work. But Jesus' point here is to expose the default mode that habitually put others down simply because they're not in our camp. You follow me? Friends, this is why we should be happy for people to pass us in ministry success because we're jealous for Jesus' name. Because we care about the glory of Jesus. We should be happy to see new elders raised up or new Bible study leaders raised up. Name the area. This is why we pray for gospel preaching churches all over our area. Because we care about the name of Jesus, not our crowd size or the programs that we offer. We're happy to pray for revival sometimes as long as it happens only in this church maybe. But can't we rejoice when the work of the Holy Spirit happens down the road? We should. We should be praying for those churches. Putting away a competitive spirit that envies crowd sizes and other people's gifts. Let the Lord work on those things uh, that need to change in their church and our churches. God is the giver of gifts and God is the one who grows his church.
Second subpoint to value here is affirm service to the glory of Jesus. Affirm service to the glory of Jesus. He gives two other reasons not to stop them. He highlights that there's no middle ground. A person is either against or for Jesus. I mean, that's key, isn't it? They're either for the biblical, the revealed, true Christ, or they're not. And he's reminding me, if I could put it into like the way you and I might put it today. Uh, did you hear what I said about being betrayed previously? Did you hear what I said about taking up the cross and following me? Guys, you will need all the allies you can get in the gospel. I'm happy to lock arms with gospel preaching pastors in this area. We need allies in the gospel. Churches who will co-labor with us in prayer. Churches who may have hands in a particular ministry. We can send them money that we don't have the hands to send them. Or the other way around. When other gospel preaching churches are hosting safe nights or helping with food or with lifestyles ministry or crisis pregnancy centers, we should rejoice that there are someone there on Team Jesus because most are not. Thank God they're there. May God bless them and grow them. May he magnify his name. Jesus then reveals anyone who extends a kind gesture, like giving a cup of water. It's a basic Eastern courtesy. And my name will never lose his reward. I recently, again, watched Ben-Hur with my sons. Took, you know, we had to break it up, it's so long. I, always, I told Bill, I think Bill reminds me of Charlton Heston for some reason. But, um, you, you know, spoiler alert, if you've ever seen, it's, the movie's been out since the 50s, I think I can talk about it. Um, there's that, there's two, two critical scenes in the movie, obviously, where Ben-Hur is served water by the one that's supposed to, you can tell in the movie, it's supposed to be Jesus who, who shows him kindness. And then Ben-Hur, in the, in the scene in the movie, gives him a cup of cold water later. And you get that sense of this, that lowly act of service pictured in that film is, don't lose the image of that. It's not just water. If you're focused on giving a cup of water, you've missed it. It's the act of kindness and mercy the Lord uses in big ways to do great things for his glory. No work done for Christ, no small task, no big task, no work done for Jesus will go unrewarded. Whoever does it to the glory of Jesus. He commends ordinary, humble, realistic acts of Christian service. Some of you young men, you boys who were out here raking leaves yesterday, Praise the Lord. Do it for Jesus. No one has a monopoly on the work of the kingdom. It's not just the work that the disciples were doing. It's also these small tasks. God wants to see us use for his glory to bring people to himself. We must accept the success of others, humbly rejoice in it, and recognize and value these kind acts of service. So can't you see how Mark, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wants you and me to adjust our value system? What we value, how we look at others, how we treat others, most of all, how we look at Christ. Jesus values ordinary, humble service. And so should we. So should we. When it all shakes out, the public ministers are not the only ones recognized. (laughs) 
Those who give even a, like a cup of water in the name of Jesus will be recognized because those who do this show, they are moving towards the kingdom. There's, there's a place to dream big for God, to dream of doing great feats for God. But friends, there's also a place to, to serve in lowly places and do great things for God in that way. Jesus brings real change to human relationships. Questions of status and greatness are no longer significant in the presence of Jesus. You think when you and I stand before Jesus, we'll be thinking about rank and file? We'll be overwhelmed with him. You'll be amazed you're there at all. To enjoy his presence forever. What matters is whether someone aligns himself with Jesus and his cause. That's the point I want to drive home here in this third aspect. What matters is whether someone aligns himself with Jesus and his cause. Friends, who else? Let me conclude with this. Who else has more inspiration and encouragement towards, to, for our hearts today to serve than we? Uh, who else has it? But Jesus. He shows, he shows himself to be the most hospitable to the needy when he served us at Calvary. He cleanses us of our filth. He is truly the bread of life as he was torn for us. He serves us the cup of salvation salvation because he drank the cup of God's wrath in our place. He paid for the heavenly meal by shedding his blood for us. He paid for that meal so we could enjoy it. Oh, friends, again and again, Mark wants us to look to Jesus. Let's pray. Amen. Lord Jesus, you become more amazing the more we look at you in the word. And we become, Lord, apparent, more and more um, revealed and exposed. And you kindly show us how much we need you, how much we need a new heart, how much we need to forget ourselves and think more of you and caring for others. God, work revival in this church, that of service. That of adorning our lives with the gospel, revive us, Lord, in this church so that we would live our lives in humble acts of ordinary service that you would use, Lord, to bring someone, bring many, Lord, we pray boldly, to know Jesus as Lord and Savior. What a joy. And we'll know in your presence to know we've been used by you. God, give us life on earth so we could be used for gospel work to serve our King and to die to self, rejoicing in you. We ask this in your name. Amen. Amen. Amen.